Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Um, we just want to welcome you guys to uh, midweek tonight. Um, happy February 1st. So happy Black History Month to everyone. Um, uh, brothers and sisters from Staten Island, uh, from Harlem, and from Brooklyn, we welcome you guys all. Uh, we're going to continue our series here in Revelation uh, by Gordon Ferguson, and we're going to get started in just a minute. But first, a quick prayer uh, by our brother from Harlem, Raul. Hey, good evening. Let's pray. Almighty God, uh, thank you so, so much uh, for you gave some to be teachers in this. That is what our brother Gordon is, a teacher, and he has been a teacher for many years, Father God, and uh, we have all been blessed, or many of us have been blessed with his generosity and his commitment to you, Father. Uh, thank you for his uh, his desire to serve you in such a way, Father, that I've dedicated his life to the teaching ministry among so many of the other things that he has done throughout a, a long career of of serving you and striving to, to honor you in all that he does. We pray that tonight that uh, we all hearts are ready to receive what you have prepared for us and prepare him to give to us. And I pray, Father, that is your grace that lead us, feel us, and bless us tonight, that uh, the lessons we are learning tonight and uh, next week for the next couple of weeks, Father, may translate in a life of, of great fruit uh, in, in, in life that brings honor and glory to you in all we do and, and say. We love you, Lord. We thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.
Good evening, and welcome back to our midweek of the New York City Church of Christ. It's great to see you all tonight. I want us to continue to remember our brother Brian Craig in prayer. He was the brother in the blue cap on the keyboard in that song we just heard. He's battling a tumor in his brain that is cancerous, and uh, they're starting chemo and radiation in Los Angeles. And so please continue to pray for Brian in your prayers. Again, I want to welcome us back tonight for lesson three of our study of the book of Revelation by our brother, Gordon Ferguson from Dallas, Texas. I remember a message that uh, Gordon spoke about at a meeting we had many, many years ago in the Dominican Republic. We had split up men and women that evening and Gordon got up there and did a splendid job as, as he always does with his class. And I'll never forget towards the end of his class, it was appealing to all of us in the room to really take care of our wives and to pay attention to our marriages. By the time he was done, brothers and sisters, there was not a dry eye in that room full of men. God, and again, like I said, weeks ago, is one of my favorite preachers, and he's back tonight, and he's going to be talking about chapters 7 to 12 in Revelation. So, Gordon, welcome back to New York. Over to you. Thank you very much, Richard. I don't remember that uh, lesson that I did, but I practiced enough of what I preached to make it to 58 years of marriage two days ago. And so on Monday, that was our 58th wedding anniversary. So uh, I'm very grateful that uh, God has uh, blessed my wife to be able to put up with me that long uh, because the credit is to her and to God a lot more than to me. But it's great to be with you tonight. We uh, are in the third lesson of Revelation. Revelation to many people uh, is a, uh, a mystery, but it's not designed to be. It's like any other book of the New Testament. It is written to a specific situ situation to meet specific needs. And even though it was written to them as the original recipients, we today get lessons from it. And so people are people. They always have been since God created us. Uh, we've got a good side, a bad side. We've got a sinful nature. We've got uh, a part that has uh, uh, put us uh, in the image of God. And so uh, we, we have the capability to do great good or great harm. But uh, as he wrote to these other churches and, you know, 2000 years ago, it we read it and we think, you know, somebody's uh, had a private detective hired to uh, scope us out. I've had a number of people come to church for the first time and they actually thought, Someone must have scoped me out and told the preacher about me because everything he said today hit me right between the eyes. And when somebody tells me that, I said, well, we're uh, actually aiming a little lower than that, but uh, I'm glad it hit you anyway, but it was aimed at your heart. So uh, the book of Revelation was written just prior, written in the first century, toward the end of the first century, but it was written just prior to the persecution by Rome against Christians really stepping up. 
And so he's giving them some advance warning about what they are about to face in a mass way. They have faced it uh, before because it started off with the Jewish persecution against the church, and then it spread to Rome, as we discussed last week. And so with Rome, it had a good beginning with Nero. I mean, I say good beginning, a, a sizable uh, entry at least, but uh, it was mainly around the city of Rome itself, not the empire. And then later, as Domitian became the emperor, that's when it really broke out because he insisted on being called Lord God Domitian, and there were statues made with that on it, and people were expected to say that, but Christians, of course, could not do that. So that led into some very intense persecution. And so the book of Revelation is about what they were about to face uh, but there's so many lessons and applications to any Christian in any generation, and hopefully uh, we'll make enough of those for you to be excited about that. So in chapter one, just to review very quickly, chapter one introduced the book and introduced Christ in a very magnificent way. Chapters two and three uh, talked about the seven churches of Asia, which were literally seven churches, even though the number seven stands for, for perfection, uh, most all the way through the book of Revelation. Uh, it still was uh, uh, representing seven literal churches, but they were representative, I think, of the entire church of the first century with their strengths and their weaknesses. So two great chapters. Chapter four, then, we're introduced to God, the Father, on the throne. In chapter five, we are introduced to Jesus, first as the lion of the tribe of Judah, but as John, the writer of the book, turns to look at the lion, he was directed to do that by an angel. When he looked at the lion, he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so the lion was actually the lamb who died for our sins. So uh, Jesus is introduced in chapter five. And then in chapter six, we get a series of seals. There was a scroll with seven seals in chapter five. And so no one could open it except Jesus. And so you've got a scroll rolled up and then wax uh, seals on it, seven of them. And you would expect you've got to take all seven off to be able to open the scroll and get the message of Revelation. But no, uh, it's a book of symbols. It doesn't work that way. It's more like some of the dreams we have at night. They make perfect sense when you're, you're in the middle of them. But uh, when you wake up and think, you think, wow, that was weird. But it wasn't weird while it was going on. And so the symbols are something that appeal to the imagination, uh, to the heart more than simply to the mind, because the bottom line of Revelation is you're going to be persecuted, but ultimately you're going to win, and it's all going to end up in heaven. I mean, that's basically the message, the bottom line. But he uses a lot of symbolism to appeal to their hearts and their imaginations to let them know that they're going to be victorious. And so then in chapter six, we get into the seals being opened one at a time, but they basically are telling us why the persecution is happening and going to, of course, happen in a more intense way. So you get the white horse first, standing for the preaching of the gospel. And when you read it, I think all of this become clear to you when you read the text. We don't have time to read all of the text, so we won't. Uh, then the second horse, or the second 
seal is the, uh, the red horse that stands for bloodshed. That's the persecution that comes because of the preaching of the gospel. That's why uh, persecution comes in any age. It's because the gospel is preached either verbally or through your life. It needs to be both, obviously. But your life may be the only Bible some people read. That's why it's so important to be an image bearer for Christ so that they can see him in us and in that way they're reading. But uh, when the gospel is preached in life or through the book, the Bible, you're going to have persecution and red represents that. Then you have economic discrimination is the black horse. And he explains that there. When we get to chapter 13, it'll be very clear that if you don't have the mark of the beast, if you're not willing to say Caesar's Lord and worship him, uh, you won't be able to buy or sell. You will lose your job. And so economic discrimination is always a part of persecution. And then finally, the pale horse, death in Hades being the rider, is just representing, okay, people end up dead. And that's what is going to happen here in the persecution. In the fifth seal, you've got souls under the altar that have been martyred. And they're saying, Lord, how long before you are going to avenge our blood? And I don't think they're talking about individual vengeance at all. They're talking about the church being vindicated, the truth being vindicated. And so that is then the fifth seal. The sixth seal is open, and there's an earthquake judgment. And I think there he just gives you a brief view of a judgment. Uh, that it's coming in order to uh, help those under the altar who had been martyred understand, okay, God is serious here. He is going to take the enemy down. Now, like always, I'm sure the early Christians thought, why is it taking so long? Uh, that's what you think, right? When your prayers don't get answered quickly or your problems don't disappear quickly like you prayed for, uh, then you think, why is this taking so long? And that's when you have to stop and think, a day is a thousand years to God and a thousand years as a day. He's a timeless being. Time means nothing to him. And he's got his purposes for waiting in your life. Now, sometimes you don't know what they are uh, while it's happening, but you look back on it and you think, oh, now I understand. Now I see the hand of God. At the time, you're thinking, hurry up. All of us think that. That's the way we are. We're impatient beings. Uh, a day uh, is, uh, is not as a thousand years to us. It's five minutes. So we want to see action. But that ends up the sixth seal. Now, seven, you know, you're all, we're going in, in, in schemes of seven here. We got seven seals. We'll have seven trumpets. We'll have seven bowls of wrath. And so the number seven is representing an ultimate uh, judgment or a phase of the judgment God is bringing against the persecuting uh, nation of Rome. And so uh, we get into chapter seven, and I'm going to get into our screen here. Okay. Okay, so we're going to get into chapter seven. So we've got all of the persecution causes in chapter six. We'll get to chapter seven, and it's very interesting. You're going to get uh, 144,000 people sealed 
and then you're going to get a great multitude, and then the trumpet starts sounding. When the seventh seal is opened, it just introduces the next phase of judgment, which is the seven trumpets, and trumpets were for warning. We'll get to that in a moment. But here's how it starts in chapter seven. Of course, the question is, okay, if all this persecution is coming, are we all going to die? I mean, what is going to happen here? Uh, they want to know, uh, God, are you really going to be with us through this? This sounds terrible. So are you going to be with us during this time? And God assures them that he is. And so very interestingly, he takes an interlude in chapter seven between the sixth and the seventh seal and tells us, okay, uh, God knows you're there. He loves every one of you. He knows every hair on your head. And he is going to protect you in one way. Not another way he won't, but he will in one way. So let's read. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of heaven, uh, uh, of the earth rather, to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, don't do it yet. Don't do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were being sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And so when it comes down to sealing, uh, and this is what I've already mentioned, but when he talks about sealing, that means uh, marking them that are his. And so all of us that have been baptized into Christ, we've been sealed, right? With the Holy Spirit. He is our seal, among other things, but he is listed as a seal. But for those that worship the beast, they also have a mark on their hand or foreheads. Uh, on their hands would mean service. Uh, to the uh, the wicked side, the bad side, and their foreheads would simply mean with their minds they were given over to the beast uh, or the devil. But uh, for us, or for the Christians back then, they were sealed in the sense of being protected. And so you got 144,000. That number, we said numbers were really big in Revelation. You take it's uh, the number for organized religion is 12. And so you take the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, 144, multiply that by 1,000, which we said is always just a large number. Uh, we use million. We'd say, I would never do that in a million years. Well, I know you won't. You won't live that long. Uh, but we're, we're just uh, exaggerating. That's a number we use just to say complete, long time. And so God owns the cattle of a 1,000 hills, the psalm said. There, the number 1,000 is used in the Bible just to denote, you know, something that's large and complete. So when you multiply it out, 144,000 is not literal. It just stands uh, for all of God's people. Now, he calls them the 12 tribes of Israel, but this is not literally Israel in the flesh. This is spiritual Israel, and uh, the list itself is spiritualized. For example, you have the tribe of Levi mentioned as one of the 12, whereas in the Old Testament, they did not get 
listed most of the time because they did not inherit land, um, uh, a land area. Uh, you also find uh, Dan and Ephraim left out of the list because that's where the uh, calf worship was set up during the time of the divided kingdom in the Old Testament. And so they're left out because they were a part of the idolatry of the northern kingdom called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and they had Jerusalem so they could worship at the temple. But then uh, you also have in the list Joseph, and he's not listed. His two sons are listed in the 12 tribes of Israel in the land allotment, but not Joseph. And yet he's such a favored son and such a hero of the Old Testament, he's in the list. So it's obviously spiritualized, and 144,000 is not literal, uh, but it is that symbolic use of it. So it represents all the redeemed of all ages, Jew and Gentile. Uh, Galatians 6.16, you see that the church is called the Israel of God. But the Israel of God is always, Old or New Testament, those who are really heart-dedicated to God. And so in the Old Testament, you had a ton of people. And you see this in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. You, the majority of Jewish people, uh, as far as the flesh, were not really the true Israel spiritually. It was always the remnant. The Old Testament called it a remnant that really had a heart for God. People like Paul and Peter and the others that became Christians. The early church started off with only Jewish people, but they were the ones that had the heart, but most Jews re rejected Christ in the first century, and they weren't the true Israel. And John the Baptist said that. He said, hey, if all that mattered was that you're a, a fleshly uh, person in the lineage of Abraham, he said, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones right here. That's not the issue. God is looking for the heart uh, of Abraham in you. And so it's very important to understand Old Testament and New Testament comprised of those who had real dedicated hearts to God. No one pleases God without a heart that is fully dedicated to him. And so that's always going to be the theme, Old Testament or New. And so when he talks about both the 12 tribes of Israel 12 apostles, all that's represented in Revelation. Uh, when you have that, it's just standing for the true spiritual Israel uh, from uh, the time of Abraham on. So Revelation 7, 9, he switches from this side, all the 144,000, all of the people of God are sealed and therefore protected from the persecution that is coming. But now you get a different view of the same people. He says, after this, I looked and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And so there's an interesting interchange between the angel and between John, uh, the apostle who was writing this. Uh, he was asked, do, do you know who these are? And he said, I don't. He, he, he said, you do. And so he had to be told that they were the ones that had already gone through the persecution, and now they were delivered and with the Lord, wearing white robes, and they were uh, uncountable, innumerable, because 
They didn't need to be numbered anymore. They're the same ones, but they are first shown as someone has said as the redeemed militant while they were on earth being persecuted. But now once they uh, are with God, either die, they died or they got killed, once they're with God, now they're the redeemed triumphant in heaven with God. And so everyone needed to be reminded that it's all going to end up good, but there's going to be a tough time, but God has sealed you as his, as his people. Doesn't mean that you won't be persecuted and killed. And we'll see in chapter 11, very interestingly, where he comes at it a different way, but he shows that they were protected spiritually, but not protected physically because they would be allowed to go through the persecution and perhaps lose their lives. And of course, tons of them actually did that. So no need to number or seal now, they're delivered. And I've just written down in my notes here that you can have the PowerPoint as, as well, uh, just some uh, notes from the Old Testament where the symbols were used in similar ways. The fact they're used in Revelation is not a fulfillment of these passages like Isaiah, but uh, it just shows you these symbols were commonly used uh, at times like this in similar ways. Now, they, the sixth seal in chapter eight, the, sixth seal, the seventh seal rather is open, but that all that does is introduces uh, the seven trumpets. So when the seal was open, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour, it says. And that's sort of like the calm before the storm. I don't know if you've ever been out and seen the calm before the storm. But I remember when I was a teenager, I was fishing in my second cousin's uh, little pond. They call them tanks here in Texas, but that was Louisiana. It was a pond, small lake. And I was fishing with a great uncle of mine, and we were catching fish, and all of a sudden we weren't catching fish, and uh, everything got super still, and the cows were not uh, eating nothing. I mean, everything stopped. The birds weren't making any noise. I mean, it got weird. And I looked over there, and I saw a green cloud rolling fast, and I said, that is Tornado Alley coming at us. Come on, uncle, let's get out of here. And we did. That's sort of what's going on here. It was the calm before the storm, before the trumpet started sounding and the judgment. He says, I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. In the Old Testament, here are a number of passages where the trumpets were used for warning. They were used for other things, but warning was a big use of trumpets. And so God warns before destruction. Uh, that's what he said in Amos 3, verse 7, great verse. But the symbolism is going to come from the Egyptian plagues and from the events of the first century world. And you can uh, see in Exodus the first trumpet and the judgment against nature. And so that is the first uh, trumpet that sounds and is a judgment against nature. Second trumpet, mountains being moved. And the symbolism from the Old Testament there is mentioned, but it means a big upheaval. Mountains symbolize power, usually political power. And so when you're talking about mountains being moved in Revelation, it just means political 
a national upheaval in this case, and the sea became blood. That takes you back to one of the plagues in Egypt. So the third trumpet sounds. God is warning. He's trying to get people to wake up and repent. He's causing things to happen that make them look at God. Interestingly, on that point, uh, that uncle, that great uncle I was fishing with when the green cloud rolled in, he had been a part of the church uh, that we were raised in for a long time, but then he left for a long time. But he would go to California and, and live with his niece, and then he would come back in the summers and go fishing with me. That was sort of his uh, modus operandi. He, he loved to fish. Uh, and so uh, he came back one summer, and he was ready to go to church with me because by then I had gotten involved in spiritual stuff. I, I wasn't. But I got involved as a young married man. Uh, Teresa was pushing me hard, and she finally succeeded. And it all happened through fishing. If you've read some of my books, uh, you've read the story about this guy, this preacher that influenced me in a, in a fishing boat. But anyway, this uncle came back ready to go to church. I said, Uncle, what happened to you? He said, man, uh, our place got hit by an earthquake. And he said, I woke up. He said, I, I need to get things going with God again. So when judgments come uh, through nature, they do wake people up. And hopefully a lot of people have been waked up by a uh, pandemic of COVID-19. Uh, hopefully that's caused people to think about meeting God. I had a guy come out uh, two days ago to uh, install a different internet line because I was having so much trouble with the one I had. And uh, I gave him one of my little books, God, Are We Good? So I talked to him about spiritual stuff, about the Bible, studying the Bible. And uh, so I said, I've got a book here that will really help you. But I said, I'm not giving it to you unless you promise me to read it. If you'll read it, I'll give you one. But I'm not giving it to you. So be honest with me. He said, okay, I promise I'll read it. But uh, he, he needs to read that. You've got to use all of your opportunities. So even a failed internet has led into me sharing with a bunch of people. And uh, some of them seem pretty, uh, pretty open. We'll see. Uh, third trumpet sounds. There's a fallen star, which suggests great power that's lost its position. And of course, it's always going to involve when a nation falls, uh, it's always going to involve the uh, leadership, the political structure of it. And so that is, I think, the third trumpet. And in my book, Revelation Revealed, or uh, one of the earlier ones, uh, what did we call that thing? I forgot what we called it. But uh, it's now Revelation Revealed through ipibooks.com. But uh, the fourth trumpet sounds, and uh, it's a plague of darkness like in Egypt. And then three woes are introduced. And those are the three remaining trumpets, which are going to step it up, and it's going to be worse in their effect. And so let's read a bit of that. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. Now you know we're dealing with symbolism, right? A star will not fit on the earth. So all of this is obviously symbols. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, uh, when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. 
And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like, like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony that they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. And so he's just talking about God bringing judgment. Ultimately, he is going to judge the persecutors and uh, the Roman Empire. The abyss refers to where the demons reside. And this smoke came up and, of course, uh, comes out of Satan's realm out of the abyss, and the smoke blocks the true light because Jesus is the light, and so Satan is always trying to block the light to keep us from knowing what it says. I hardly ever, uh, of all the people that I share with, I rarely run into anyone that knows hardly anything about the Bible, and yet they consider themselves Christians. And so every funeral that you attend, they're safe in the arms of Jesus, according to whoever's presiding over the thing. In spite of uh, Matthew 7, it says there's a broad road that leads to the wrong place, and most are on it. There's a narrow road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I mean, it's as clear as everything that most people aren't going to be safe in the arms of Jesus when they die, but Satan with his uh, various ways of deceiving and his lies, uh, it blocks the true light. And so that's uh, what's going on here. The, the, the uh, locust plague in the Old Testament, uh, judgment by locusts coming in and eating all the crops and uh, people starving or near starving as a result. That's all a part of the Old Testament uh, symbolism. But he's just saying that God is going to bring judgment. And he's going to dig right down into the place where Satan lives. And he's going to deal with all of that ultimately. And we'll see that later in the book. And so the locust plague uh, likely pictures a judgment against Rome through internal decay. So it comes out of the abyss. And so the uh, coming from out of the earth that way, it uh, probably... Uh, designates internal decay. I think it's interesting, the six uh, uh, trumpet sounds, and here you've got 200 million horsemen, 200 million troops lined up. And uh, this, uh, I think, suggests external invasion. Gibbon wrote a very famous book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And it shows three main reasons for the downfall of Rome. Natural calamity was one of those. There were floods and earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. I've seen some of that in uh, the, the lands where it took place. And uh, it, it, was, uh, it was calamity. I mean, we look at the calamities that we're having in the United States right now, and we're talking about, for one big flood, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And this stuff is increasing, if you've noticed. And so we're having more weird weather. There are, I don't know, 300,000 people in Texas right now without power because we, we're iced up here. 
it's been raining and freezing and the roads are iced up there. I hadn't seen a car go by in the last two days. Uh, they had one wreck where uh, an 18 wheeler turned sideways and uh, there was a hundred cars involved in the wreck or something like that. So natural calamity hits us. We know what that is and we know what it does economically. And it did that to Rome. They had a lot of it. internal rottenness was the second uh, cause based on Gibbon's book. And that's corrupt rulers. And so I, I think uh, we got to look at our own country here. There's a bunch of internal rottenness. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? When we looked at, look at our political system and the people in politics, I, I don't think there's any question that we've got our own problems, not to the extent they got to before their nation fell, but we need to be careful with our own uh, external invasion, new and old enemies. But the Parthians were an extremely strong uh, nation themselves, and they were always going at it with Rome after a certain point. They existed from 200-something as a as a very strong nation, 200 and something uh, years uh, before Christ, 200 and something afterwards. So they were involved in the Roman Empire uh, setting as far as the, the dates go, and they were definitely a dreaded enemy by Rome. And there were a lot of fighting uh, battles that took place with them. So those were the things that ultimately caused Rome to fall, natural calamity, internal rottenness, and external invasion. Uh, I read an interesting article about a book that I'd heard of for years. There's a guy that was uh, in, in England. He was a researcher. Uh, Cambridge, uh, he, he was associated with some of the best schools in England, and Oxford and, and Cambridge mainly, I think. But he did a ton of research, and he wasn't a Christian guy. But he did a ton of research on what uh, causes nations to fall. And his judgment is it can be seen and measured through the sexual values and practices of a nation. And so he showed he studied 86 nations, 700 something page book. And he said it was way too short. He had a lot more uh, information than he could have put in it. But uh, at any rate, this is uh, early in the 19th century or the 20th century, early, early 20th century. But I read a, a synopsis of this thing and posted it on my Facebook page at one point. But he goes through and can tell pretty well, uh, looking at the sexual values and practices of a country, how long it's going to last. And I dare say that when you compare what he said to America today, uh, we're in bad, bad place. So that's, uh, I found this article that a guy had written and given a synopsis of a guy named Unwin, U-N-W-I-N, I believe is the way he spelled it, but he's the guy that did all the research on it. But Gibbon came down with these things about what caused Rome to fall. And I think all that's represented here. Now, we get to chapter 10 and we have the scroll and uh, a very interesting little sequence here, but there is uh, going to be a woman and a dragon when we get to chapter 12. But in the meantime, chapter 10, we've had uh, six trumpets sound by now. And of course, like the six seals, there was an interlude 
And there's another one here in chapters 10 and 11 before we get to the seventh trumpet, which you would think is the end of everything because the last trumpet has sounded. And the Bible talks about that when Christ returns, he's going to come with the trumpet and the voice of the archangel, etc. So uh, there's an interlude here, but it's a very interesting one. There's an angel in chapter 10 that John sees, the writer of Revelation. There's an angel, a really big one, and he's got a little scroll. And so it ends up with uh, some sounds going on, and John understands them, and he starts to write, and the angel said, no, don't write it down. We're not done here yet. And so he ends up giving the scroll to John and says, eat the little scroll. You need to eat it. And so uh, he ate the scroll. He, he wouldn't let him write because he's about to get to the seventh trumpet here. And that would suggest the end of the world because Jesus comes at the last trump, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, we've read earlier that he will come with a trumpet call of God, Jesus will. And so the seventh trumpet would suggest the end of the world. And I think it represents that at the end of chapter 11, but he's gonna then switch over in the last half of the book and start in chapter 12, giving us a different view of why all of this is taking place. Outwardly, it's a preaching of the gospel and bloodshed and whatever we got out of the six seals. But then in chapters uh, 12 and beyond, or 13 especially, but in chapters 12 and beyond, he's going to go behind the scenes, and I'll explain that a bit more in a moment. So I know I'm going fast. There's a lot of material, but you will have the same outline that I uh, am going through here, and you can look at it more carefully, or you can get the book and read it, and I would suggest that. Uh, most people I've talked to that have read the book have said to me, that has cleared up so much for me. I try to write it as I do all my books in a very simple way. Jesus told pretty simple little stories about, uh, you know, about nature and about uh, uh, weeds and seeds and all of that. And so I try to teach in a way that people can grasp. And I think the book does a pretty good job of that. Now, he tells him to eat the little scroll, and he does. He said it, it, it was uh, very sweet in my mouth and very bitter in my stomach. And that exact uh, same thing took place in Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll, and he did. He said it was, it was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. Well, that's what God's judgments do. Uh, I have preached many sermons that I loved the text that I was using. And the verses that I was using, I love the Bible. I believe with all my heart, it is a spirit-inspired word of God. I, I love the Bible. I've already got my memorial figured out. And uh, I, I've got a song I won't play about ancient words. It changed my life. I love that song because it expresses what I believe about the Bible and the changes it's made to my life for all of these decades now that God has allowed me to live. But I preached many sermons where it was sweet in the sense it was God's word, but it was hard to preach. 
because I knew it was hitting people hard. I knew it was a very serious lesson. And those kind are hard to do. I mean, we love people. Uh, those of us that preach, we love people. We want to help people. But we know sometimes they need to hear it in a very strong, challenging way. And if you read Paul's last book, uh, in the last chapter of his last book, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I mean, he lays it out about people uh, just wanting to hear people uh, preach what they want and uh, not wanting to hear the truth. And so sometimes when we know it's hard for people to take the truth, it, it, it leaves our stomach with some acid in it. And uh, I know the uh, Richard and Scott here that are listening and others that, that speak regularly, uh, you know what I'm talking about here. So it signifies, though, a recommissioning of John to continue prophesying even after the seventh trumpet does sound. You've got uh, two faithful witnesses uh, in chapter 11. The temple is measured, and that shows God's protection of his people, and it's very much like chapter 7 and giving them the seal on their foreheads. It's very much like that, sealing them. But uh, it shows God's protection. So the temple is measured, but the outer court is left unprotected, uh, probably in a physical sense, uh, representing the temple with its inner part and the court of the Gentiles. But the outside part is not protected. And so I think he's saying here what he did say in chapter 7, that we will be persecuted uh, physically, but protected spiritually. So chapter 11 is very interesting. You've got these two witnesses uh, here that I think uh, they've got olive trees, candlesticks, a supply of the spirit for preaching that comes out of Zechariah 4 as far as the symbolism of it. And so they are preaching the word, and it uh, seems to indicate the power of Moses and Elijah seen in these early preachers uh, of the church. And so they had great success, but then they get killed and they're lying open in the street of the city where Jesus was crucified and all the non-Christians are rejoicing over them, but then they're in for a surprise. They stand on their feet after a period of persecution and that refers to the victory of the Christian cause. We'll get to that in chapter 20 again but I think it is a symbolic way of showing that the gospel was preached and worked wonderfully and spread fast all over the known world at that time. But then the persecution came and it looked like Satan had won and the church was done because they were meeting in catacombs and any place they could hide, the church was there, but they just had to go into hiding like churches do in some places today, some countries today. I've been to some churches that were supposedly uh, illegal and hidden. I've been uh, in places where we couldn't sing. We've met in apartments. We could not sing. We had to be very careful because had we been caught, uh, it could have meant some serious consequences. So I've been to some of those underground churches, and that's what the church did. So from one sense, uh, it looked like the church was gone. They didn't know where they were. They're down in the catacombs worshiping. They're finding some hidden place to worship during the time of intense persecution that was going to come uh, in the far, not too uh, distant future from this time 
when John was writing this. Uh, they stood up on their feet. Their cause was uh, uh, resurrected. And again, we'll get to that in chapter 20. Now, we uh, had the seventh trumpet that is sounded, and it seems and sounds like it is the last judgment. But there's more to come. That's what John is told. It's that little scroll that he ate. He's got some preaching still to do. It is going to be some bitter stuff, but it's going to taste sweet because it's the word of God. And so this part of Revelation shows the battle between the church and the world, whereas the latter part, picking up in chapter 12, will go behind the scenes, the real issue of Christ versus Satan. That's what it's all about. This is a spiritual battle between Christ and Satan, but it's playing out in the first 11 chapters on the earth in the persecution, but all the background is really the battle that's taking place in heaven. It's sort of like in a movie. You start off at a place in a movie and you see something current, but you have no idea how it got there. And so you get these little wavy lines sometimes and all of a sudden you're thrown back 50 years and you see how it got started. And then it brings you up to speed and picks back up where it was. And so that's a common thing that's done in films, uh, movies, videos, etc. And that's what is happening here. You've got what is seen on the earth. That's the persecution and all that went with it. That we've talked about God's judgment against it, the warnings of the trumpets, etc. But now we're going to go behind the scenes, and it says a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, 10 horns, seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will, quote, rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And so we've said that was the persecution period, a time of great instability. And so we've got 42 months, three and a half years, a time, times and a half a time, or 1260 days. It's three and a half years, but that was symbolic for the period of persecution. Now, you can figure out uh, what we're talking about there. The woman would be Israel. Of course, the Bible talks about Israel being the wife of God. God says, I am married unto you. So there was a, a spiritual marriage between God and Israel in order to have a baby called Jesus. That's how babies ought to come, two married people getting together and having babies. And that's what Israel did. God was married to Israel. She was the wife of God. And so it's pictured as Old Testament Israel giving birth to Christ. And the dragon is there trying to kill the baby. And of course, who was his agent for that? Herod. And he ended up killing uh, all, all the people in Bethlehem, uh, uh, two years old and younger, 
a horrible situation, but you remember the story, right? That's a Christmas story uh, when we often tell that. So the dragon, seven heads, great wisdom, 10 horns, great power, seven diadems or crowns, great authority. All of that's just symbolic of uh, the power of Satan. Uh, he has tremendous power, hail draws stars of heaven and throws them on the earth, etc. And we see the birth of Jesus. He tries to kill him. He doesn't. And after 33, uh, 30 years, 33 years, uh, he's caught up to God. That's the incarnation, Jesus being born as a human. And then the ascension as he goes back to the father at the end of Matthew in the book of Acts and all of that. And so uh, that is picturing Christ. But now this is the interesting part. The woman flees into the wilderness. So the woman has become now the New Testament people of God because we're tied in. We are spiritual Jews and the spiritual Jews of the Old Testament whose hearts were really dedicated to God, they were the ones that formed the early church. And I know a lot of Jewish background people uh, today that are Christians. And so uh, all of those that have a heart for God and uh, had become Christians, they're, they're tied into the Israel of the Old Testament, at least the remnant, the, the faithful ones who had a heart for God. And so the uh, woman, first of all, is Israel giving birth to Jesus. And now the woman is pictured as the same woman, but it's really now the New Testament people of God, the, the New Testament Israel of God, as Galatians 3 and 6 and all of that say that we've discussed before. There's war in heaven between Michael and the devil. Michael is one of the archangels that's named in the Bible. Satan is the serpent. He's a slanderer. He's an adversary. There's a battle. He gets cast out. And so that just means he's limited in power. He can uh, do some things to people. But, you know, Jesus said, don't fear the one that can kill the body. And that's it. You better fear the one that can kill the body and the soul. That would be God in judgment if you don't uh, find yourself as a part of those faithful to him. And so that's sort of how it ends up here. And it describes, this is the last part. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half a time. He said 42 months before. Now he gives the other way of saying three and a half. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water, water like a river to overtake the woman. And of course, out of Satan's mouth is always lies. This is representing lies. But it says the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. The fact that the world buys the lies of Satan helps me not to buy them. Uh, honestly, it's because the world is so messed up. I look at other people's lives and I say, oh, don't believe. There's no way that I could turn from being a Christian. I mean, I would have to lose my entire brain to do that because I, I've lived 80 years now. 
I have watched my family. I have watched relatives and cousins and more cousins and all kinds of people. I've watched what happens without Jesus. And that's what happened. Satan spews his lies out trying to get to us. But the world helps us because they swallow the lies and show us the end result of it. And so you have uh, Satan then going out since he couldn't get the woman, he couldn't get the church as a whole, the people of God as a whole. Now he goes and wars against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. He couldn't get the whole uh, woman of God or the church now, the Israel of God spiritually. He couldn't get her, so now he goes after those individually and tries to pick us off one by one because he can't destroy the church. Jesus said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He couldn't get everyone, but he could get enough uh, individually, and that's what he is trying to do now. He couldn't get the church, so now it's individual Christians. And this book is written to help the individual Christians hang together as a church and allow God to protect us as a family of God. I need help. You need help. We need each other. And God intends that we be this spiritual woman married to him. We are the bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5, right? And so we are married to Jesus spiritually. We have to hang together or Satan will get us because he's coming after us individually. And the only way I know to beat him uh, as an individual is I got to have help. It takes a village uh, to raise a child, they say, but it also takes a village to make it to heaven. That's what the church is all about. Uh, I was uh, kidding with my grandsons and son and daughter by marriage the other day in the text. And we're talking about me uh, getting to 80 and our marriage, 58 years and all of that. And I said uh, to my grandchildren and all of that, I said, it takes a whole village of kids and grandkids to raise grandparents. So <laughs> we all got to have help, doesn't matter our age. But that is the end of the uh, presentation for tonight. We got through chapter 12. Chapter 13, we're going to pick up with uh, Satan's two beast allies, and they both represent Rome, and we'll get into that one next week. So we covered a lot of ground. Go back through the notes. Hopefully this has been helpful to you. But one thing I end with tonight is Satan is after us. He is the great deceiver. He is the great accuser. He is trying to get us any way that he can. And he throws out lies, and individually, we might fall for them, but collectively, we've got to help each other. I need the church. I need help. I need people in my life. This Lone Ranger, stranger thing does not work well. And that was the worst thing about the pandemic. I'm glad we had Zoom. I'm telling you, we need people in our lives. I have people in my life. I've got things that I, I hope that I have people that I have asked to hold me accountable on certain points for. Because even at age 80, I just have to have my brothers and sisters to encourage me and sometimes to convict me 
so that I stay faithful and don't fall prey to Satan because he's always got his ways. And next week we'll meet two of his allies, a land beast and a sea beast, representing two aspects of Rome that were trying to kill the church in the early centuries. Okay, a lot of stuff in a hurry, but uh, I'll give you the notes, or they will. Scott and Richard send them out. But uh, look at all the cross-references. Look at all of this. But uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. I mean, if you could just really picture what John must have seen, uh, it blew his mind. And it, would, it, it blows mine when I really get into Revelation and start imagining what John saw and what all of it meant. Okay, so that's me, Rich. Whoever's signing off here tonight, I know you're going into groups. All right. Thank you, Gordon, for enlightening us on the chapter 7 and 12 of the book of Revelation. Thank you for helping us to understand the context and the symbolism. Thank you also to Brooklyn, Queens, Harlem, and all of our visitors for joining us tonight. We will be back here next week, same time, same place, for lesson four. Let's pray. Um, great and awesome Father God, thank you for technology, Lord, letting us uh, be able to gather together from our homes, uh, from different regions, from across the country, to be able to learn about your word and dig deep into Revelation. Father God, I pray, Father, that, uh, that we'll be able to take time to digest uh, all of the great learnings that we received here today. I pray for our country, Father, that we don't fall into the path of Rome, of moral decline. Um, Father God, I pray uh, that you protect us, Father, um, as Satan goes after us individually. I pray, Father, that uh, we will draw close to each other, that we will rely on each other uh, to get to heaven, Father. Uh, as Gordon said, it takes a village to get to heaven. I pray, Father, that uh, within our, our distinct churches, that uh, they will be with each other, that we'll protect each other, we'll hold each other accountable. And uh, I pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so at this time, uh, we are dismissed. Um, each region is doing something different. Um, if you your Bible talk is gathering together to do breakout rooms, you can go there. Thank you.